Find out which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The Wellness Community and Gilda's Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, the largest provider of cancer support in the U.S. and around the world. Our services are offered at over 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. On today's show, which is being brought to you in part by Celgene and Genentech, we'll be talking about the growing trend of Americans who are raising their children without their own parents. We'll hear one woman's story of carrying the hereditary gene and her life as a parentless parent. Uh, according to a recent study, which was published by Reuters, there's a growing trend in America where women are having children later in life. No surprise. Um, and, do, you know, they're doing this due to a variety of factors. Um, the study says that in 1990, only 9% of births were to women 35 years and older. However, by 2008, 14% were to older women, and the number's continuing to grow. And, and while these changes can lead to, to positive outcomes, this trend also shows that millions of children are at risk of having fewer years with their grandparents than ever before. Uh, this sweeping demographic shift can affect every member of the family. So today we've got a great show. We'll be discussing this new trend and what it means for the American family dynamic. Um, just a little bit of background for folks. According to the American Cancer Society, roughly 1,500 people die a day from cancer, uh, accounting for nearly one out of four deaths in the U.S. And so when a parent or a child dies of cancer, it often changes certainly the family dynamic and can have a lifelong effect on the roles of those who are closest to them. Uh, and, you know, while senior Americans are living longer, they're not living long enough to compensate for these growing gaps in grandparent and grandchild relationships. Um, in fact, the concept of parentless parents is a growing and, and really sometimes a heartbreaking trend in the U.S. today. So uh, throughout our episode today, we'll be talking to Allison Gilbert. We'll be hearing about her journey after losing both her parents by the age of 31 to cancer. <clears throat> Excuse me. While researching for her new book titled Parentless Parents, Allison conducted surveys, focus groups, and interviews with over 13,000 parentless parents and found emotional responses with some surprising commonalities. Allison's journey is like many we hear at the cancer support community. And uh, after losing both of her parents to cancer at a young age, Allison opted for genetic testing, and it was determined that she was a BRCA 
gene carrier, and we're going to hear more today about what that means to be a BRCA gene car- uh, carrier. And her, her story from there really mimics many that we hear uh, at the cancer support community, but her perspective today will offer some new insight and guidance for listeners who may also be parentless parents or have hereditary cancer uh, you know, in their family. Uh, today we'll be talking to Allison about her experience of losing her parents, her, <coughs> excuse me, uh, her decisions revolving around her bracket diagnosis and her book that serves as a, a hybrid of both research and, and the personal story of her own journey. Uh, we'll also be talking today to Karen Brown, a genetic counselor, who will offer insight into the new world of genetic testing and really what our listeners today need to know. So, uh, as I mentioned, our first guest is Allison Gilbert, author uh, of Always Too Soon and uh, the new book, Parentless Parents. She's also a journalist, a wife, a mother of, of two children, and we thank you so much for being here, Allison. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And we are also here with Karen Brown, a genetic counselor at Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Karen. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, too. So we've got a lot to cover on the show today, so I want to jump right in. Um, Allison, I know that you were introduced to cancer early in your life. Can you tell us about this experience? Well, for sure. Um, My mother uh, was diagnosed with ovarian cancer um, really young. She died ultimately um, at 57. Um, That was before I was married and before I had children. So I was introduced to the disease and the um, horrible toll it takes not only on the patient but also on the family. Yeah, yeah, and and I understand that through through your through this process, Allison, you um, learned that you are uh, a, a BRCA gene car- a carrier. So tell us again about the, what you learned about your family, about the family history, and how you decided to, to get this test so we can start putting these pieces together. When my mom was still um, sick in the hospital, uh, her surgeon had recommended that I get genetic counseling to see if I was going to be um, in danger of um, getting ovarian cancer too at some point in my life. Um, when he first mentioned it to me, it really seemed uh, like a far-off um, process that I would not be doing that anytime soon. Um, you know, I was only 25 at that time, and like I said, I wasn't even married, and there's lots of consequences, which we'll talk about, right. if you do test positive for the BRCA gene in terms of your options. And I wasn't ready to deal with those options um, at that point, but um, it was a very clear cut case as far as the doctor was concerned, my mother's doctor, that I should be tested to, that it was a wise choice, and that the gene, if I had it, would be a not a 100% indicator of what was to come in my life, but a pretty good indicator of what could happen in my life, and it would allow me to make some really life-empowering um, decisions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So... So you decided to get this test, that, um, and you learned through this test that you um, were a BRCA gene car- uh, carrier, BRCA gene carrier. Carrier, Karen. Let's go. Let's let's for our listeners, because I know we're you know getting into some complicated medical terms here. Um, what does it mean? What is the BRCA gene? Uh, and you know, what does it mean for someone like Allison and others um, to be a BRCA gene carrier or, or, or have the BRCA gene? Well, as we've heard, cancer runs in some families, and although most cancers occur by chance, 
In some families, cancer is hereditary, which means that it's occurring as the result of an inherited predisposition. Um, BRCA1 or BRCA1 and BRCA2 are the names of two genes that have been linked to hereditary breast and ovarian cancer. And uh, everybody has these genes, and their job is to help protect us against cancer. Uh, Some individuals actually inherit an altered BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene, and that gene doesn't work as well. So inheriting an altered gene results in an inherited predisposition to breast and ovarian cancers. A woman who has an alteration in either of the BRCA genes has a lifetime risk for breast and ovarian cancer that's significantly higher than the general population. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, Allison, so, so your mom had ovarian cancer. You had a number of conversations with the healthcare team. When, how, why did you decide to get tested and, and, and you know, at what point did you decide to do that? And, um, what, you know, what, what were the things that factored into your uh, decision-making? Um, I knew I was going to get the test um, sooner than later. I was not convinced about my action plan um, because the action plan, once you're diagnosed with BRCA, is that you can either... Uh, or, if, you know, if, if you're BRCA positive, that you can live with that and the increased risk that that, you know, uh, means for you individually, which is exceptionally higher than the general population, or you can do something about it. And the doing something about it was much more complicated because that means, um, in my case, that I was going to remove my ovaries. Mm-hmm. Um, when you remove your ovaries um, with, you know, high school biology, you can't have children. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I wasn't prepared, not even being married yet, to go down that road. And so I knew that um, for me, um, my choice to have um, preventative surgery or prophylactic surgery, as I'm, I learned was the actual term to do surgery right. before something is wrong with you, um, that I should have my children first. Um, mm-hmm. I knew I wanted kids, and I wasn't going to put the risk of cancer ahead of my life that I wanted to lead. So I knew that if I was going to live my life and have kids, then I would remove my ovaries um, when I was done, so to speak, being a childbearing mom. So at what point or at what age did you, did you decide to get tested? Um, I got tested in my mid-30s, and it wasn't for several years after that that I actually had the surgery. So I was uh, in surgery uh, in, uh, at 37. I was 37 years old. And what that meant for me, which I think is really the most... Um, important part for me of this story was that at 37, I was in menopause. So mm-hmm. this is not a light decision to have been made. I was weighing a lot of real uh, personal risks and rewards. The, the risk was to, uh, at least in my mind, was to get sick and die young like my mom uh, yeah. or to stay alive for my kids. And so for me, it was ultimately a mommy decision. I wanted to be alive for my two kids. I have a daughter and a son, and 
uh, they're delicious, and I wanted to be, I wanted to ensure as yeah. much as I humanly could that I would stick around. And so, um, with them being born and them being well on their way into toddlerhood and et cetera, I said, you know what, um, it's time. It's time for me to do what I can. Yeah. Um, to um, take away that fear. It was a real, I must say, it was a real dark cloud that followed me around everywhere I went. Um, Every time I, and and it it infected my thinking about all sorts of things. You know, if I had a headache, I thought I had a tumor. If I had a stomachache, I thought I had, um, you know, um, a malignancy. I mean, it, it really, truly, and I think I didn't use the word lightly, it really infected my thinking. And so for me to cut my ovaries out of me actually severed and extricated fear. And so to me, that was a very life-empowering decision, and uh, I'm still glad that I did it to, you know, t- today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we are having a, a really interesting discussion about uh, about the BRCA gene, about what it means to be a parent without parents raising your kids. Um, we've got two great guests. We've got Allison Gilbert, um, author of a new book, Parentless Parents, and Karen Brown, who's a genetic uh, counselor in New York. Um, we're just going to take a quick break here, and uh, we will be right back to continue this uh, interesting conversation. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices? I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Today we're talking about hereditary cancer and the genetic testing decision that many individuals face when their parents and other family members are diagnosed with cancer. Uh, we're talking to Allison Gilbert, author and mother, who lost both of her parents at a young age to cancer. 
Uh, Allison had genetic testing and has been identified as a BRCA carrier. Uh, we're also here with Karen Brown, a genetic counselor at Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York. So uh, welcome back to our listeners. Um, we, uh, Karen, we learned that, um, that Allison chose to have genetic testing done because of her family uh, history with cancer. Should, should everyone who's had a family member with cancer have genetic testing? How, do you, how does someone begin to assess their risk and even ask the question whether I should be tested to see if I have some, some genetic predisposition to cancer? Right. Well, the, the test is a very powerful tool, but it's not appropriate for everyone. Mm-hmm. And that's because most breast and ovarian cancers occur by chance, and they're not due to an inherited uh, genetic alteration in the BRCA genes. Um, in families that do have an inherited predisposition to cancer, there's often a strong family history of cancer. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very important to know your family history. Um, reviewing the family history of cancer is the first step in assessing whether genetic testing should be considered. Mm -hmm. So to give a few examples of what might constitute a significant family history, if there are several women on the same side of the family with breast cancer, if there's a history of male breast cancer or fallopian tube cancer, which are generally quite rare, these would be indications for genetic testing. Also, any woman with ovarian cancer is a candidate for genetic testing. Um, now, those are the technical considerations, but there are also other considerations, which Allison was mentioning before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and people have to ask themselves, is this the right time for testing? How will I deal with the emotional impact if I learn that I have a BRCA mutation? And will knowing whether I have a mutation affect my medical care? Mm-hmm. And do we know, do we, when you say how will it affect my medical care, do you mean in terms of decision making? Do you mean in terms of discrimination? Do you mean, what do you mean when you say that? Uh, well, I was really referring to decision making. Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, if someone is 25 uh, and they know that they want to have children, um, Right, they may decide to screen as if they were at increased risk, but not to have the testing at that moment, even if they plan to have it a few years hence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's so, a very emotional decision. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is not just about life and death, although it sounds quite black and white. You get tested, you learn the gene, do something about it, save your life. It's so much more complicated than that because, like I said, I did this when I was 37, Mm -hmm. and part of the discussions that I had with my doctor, and I was very, very um, forward with him, and my husband came to all these meetings. You know, if we can talk frankly, I was worried about my sex life. I mean, mean, let's talk, you know, real. Sure, sure. I'm 37 years old. I am full of every hormone known to a woman, and um, this is not gradual menopause. This is not like over, you know, a period of time where my body body suddenly thins out and, you know, the hormones kind of drop off naturally. This right. was going from hormones to almost no hormones overnight. And I like say almost... Cliff. Yeah, it's off a cliff. And yeah. I say almost no hormones because, of course, you still have some in your body before they kind of all leave. And so there's a little bit of residual um, 
hormones left, but this was a very big decision, and all the things that you think about with menopause, whether or not it's, you know, hot flashes or weight gain or hair sitting or dry skin or lack of sex drive or all of those things that aren't pretty to talk about, those are things that I had to talk about when I was 37. So in terms of being, you know, a parentless parent, I'm also a parentless mom and so, and also a parentless wife, and so these were very, very important decisions for me to make, and none of them I felt were very easy. So, Karen, what, what, so when someone does have a, a, a test, so what, what information do they get? I mean, do they get a number? You have X percentage risk of getting, you know, breast or ovarian cancer in your lifetime. Do they get, we're, you know, do they get that kind of level of certainty or do they just show some elevated risk? Or, you know, what, what are the statistics and what kind of information do people get when they're tested? Uh, when people are tested, if they do test positive, um, they do receive specific risks. They're risk estimates, however, because the test can't tell a person whether they'll actually develop cancer, although the chances are quite high, mm-hmm. uh, or at what age a cancer may develop. Mm-hmm. Um, some women with a BRCA alteration develop more than one cancer, and the test can't predict who that might happen to either. Right. Um, generally, what we would advise someone is that the lifetime risk for breast cancer is somewhere between 45 and 55 percent. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that the lifetime chance for ovarian cancer is between 15 and 40 percent. Can I add something to that, though? Yeah. I think there's something that we're not paying attention to. We're, we're talking about stats, and I, and I totally understand that. But w- with every stat, there's real people. And I think that the emotional um, consequences of testing for BRCA and being BRCA positive um, and weighing these decisions, there's so much more cost involved than just percentages. Because sure. I, you know, my risk would have been what, you know, perhaps Karen has indicated, but I felt emotionally that my risk was 100%. Right, sure. If that makes sense. Sure. To me, it felt like a foregone conclusion that I was going to be getting ovarian cancer because I watched my mom die of it. And so when you see someone that close to you um, who you love suffer and um, and all the ugly parts of death and dying that, um, that there is to see, and I think I saw those things way too young, it really corrodes your thinking, um, and not just about um, your own life, but really about whether or not you're going to make it through your life, if that makes sense. Now, when, now you decided, Allison, that you did not want to get tested for a period of time in your life. So were you, did that hang over you, the fear of, you know, that maybe cancer is developing in you, or did you get monitored differently than somebody who wouldn't have the genetic risk? Um, Yes, I'm sure I did. I was under high-risk surveillance. I almost felt like I was somebody with cancer with how many times I would go to different doctors throughout the year to get high-risk surveillance. Mm -hmm. I would be getting transvaginal ultrasounds. I would be getting um, breast MRIs and breast sonograms because, of course, BRCA gene, um, as Karen has indicated, affects not only ovarian cancer, but of course your breast cancer risk. So I was being monitored, um, I think, for, for everything. You know, I was getting, um, you know, CA125 blood tests, which is a cancer marker test to see whether or not those were elevated. These were 
I mean, every two or three months, I was in a doctor's office, a nurse's office, a phlebotomist's office, um, and these were not little tests. I mean, I would be right. doing something, you know, every three months, and I felt good about doing that, but it didn't take away what I truly believe was a foregone conclusion even before I got the BRCA results. I thought, I knew in my head that I had BRCA. I just knew it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, you decided to get genetic counseling. So at what point did you decide to do that? Did you, do that? Did you decide to do that before you got the test, after you got the test? Tell, tell us about that process. Well, the, the, the genetic counseling, as far as when I had it done, it was, part and pal, it was part and parcel with actually doing the test. Like, you couldn't get the test and not have counseling. So mm-hmm. for me, it was part of the same package. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe Karen and her experience has other options. I don't know. Um, well, I, of course, think that genetic counseling is important for people because of all these implications that we're discussing and because of the emotional impact. Um, mm-hmm. But, of course, um, any qualified healthcare practitioner can offer BRCA testing to their patients. Now, Karen, do you think that um, your your professional opinion on this, do you think that do you think that someone should have the genetic test if they don't know what they would do if they found out that they had the gene? If I mean, do you sure. think that somebody should, go, you know, should, should somebody go through that thought process and decision process before they actually even go in and get the test? I think they should go through it. I think they should be... Um... I think it should be explained to them what options are available should the test results be positive, and then it should be explored um, how those options apply to them because, of course, everybody is different Mm -hmm. and their circumstances are different and different things will be right for different people. Um, so, So I absolutely think that people should explore those issues before testing. So what, do you, so what are the, um, you know, so let's clear up some misconceptions around genetic testing and the BRCA gene. Um, what, are, what are, you know, some of the myths around this or some of the misconceptions around, around uh, genetic testing and, and, and the BRCA gene? Well, one misconception is that the family history of cancer on the father's side is not important. Mm, and that just is not true. Um, men is, it as, have, is it as important? Is it it's as just important? as important. You know, if, if a man has a, a BRCA gene, mm-hmm. he may not develop cancer. His risks are, are not as significant as a woman's. But he can have that gene, and he may or may not pass it along to his children. Mm-hmm. So if there's a, a family history of breast or breast and ovarian cancer on the father's side, mm-hmm. it should absolutely be paid attention to. So he, so he could be simply a carrier of that gene. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And then uh, another common misconception is that if breast cancer or ovarian cancer is diagnosed after menopause, mm-hmm. it isn't hereditary. And it's true that hereditary cancers are more likely to be diagnosed at a young age and cancers that occur by chance are more likely to be diagnosed later in life, mm-hmm. but it's only a rule of thumb. So there are indeed women who are diagnosed with cancer at a young age who don't carry a cancer predisposing gene, and there are women who are diagnosed later in life who do. Right. 
Now, so you Allison, have to look we, at the whole family the history. Whole, the whole history. Mm-hmm. Allison, we've only got a minute or so till the break, but um, so you, you, you felt in your mind that you knew that you had this gene. Um, so, what, so what was the benefit of genetic counseling? The genetic counselor um, that I worked with was, I think, a handholder. Mm-hmm. I think was um, someone who understood what this information meant to me, mm-hmm. and it helped me sort out risk and reward of doing it immediately or waiting, because as you get older, your risk increases, mm-hmm. um, but also if you do it sooner, you're in menopause longer. So it's really just putting, putting those facts together, putting that, yeah, putting that pathway together. Yeah, there is a mind boggling number of numbers and, uh, mm-hmm. and, 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 and figures and things to contemplate. Mm-hmm. And I certainly, um, this is all new to me, and I just wanted it to be boiled down to me in a very approachable manner. And I think a counselor um, helped me to do that. Yeah. I think I knew what I was going to decide. I think they just helped me get there. Great. So, um, so that that's very helpful. This is frankly speaking about cancer today. We're talking about hereditary cancer, uh, and uh, we're also going to hear about a new book that Allison has written. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. A healthy dialogue for your lifestyle. Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, which is brought to you in part today by Azi, Morphotech, and Millennium. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo, and we're here with Allison Gilbert, author of Parentless Parents and a BRCA gene carrier. We're also talking to Karen Brown, a genetic counselor 
at Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York who works with patients who are both considering the test and who have tested positive uh, for the gene. Um, uh, so, so Allison, to, so let's continue down this path. You yeah. talked to us about losing your mother. Um, you talked to us about deciding that you didn't want to have the test for a while. You wanted to get married. You wanted to have kids. You did that, got married, had two great kids. Um, but the, well, this really most was, days they're great. On most <laughs> days they're great, as most kids. <laughs> most <laughs> days. But that you really decided down the road that this, you know, that this was sort of looming and that you had kind of accomplished those things that were important to you in your life and that you really wanted to kind of, you were ready at a point to address this issue head on. So you decided to have the counseling, decided to get tested for the BRCA gene, and then tell us what unfolded out of that. Um, we made a date for the surgery. I mean, it was as simple as that. Um, I knew I was going to get my ovaries removed. Um, so they found. So let's go back for folks who might just be joining us. So they you 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 uh, they tested you for the gene. They they showed that you did have this genetic mutation, and then you decided that you were going to have. Um, so what was the surgery? Um, I had an oophorectomy which mm-hmm. basically is a fancy word for just taking out my ovaries. Mm-hmm. Um, while I was at it, I had a hysterectomy just because okay. I felt um, maybe Karen can tell me whether I was right or wrong. I, I don't mm-hmm. remember the actual numbers, but I felt like why not get all the potential parts removed that could potentially get sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just, you know, I had my kids. I was done. I, I didn't want to live in fear anymore. And so I had the oophorectomy, which is just removal of my ovaries and fallopian tubes, and I had my hysterectomy because I was done having children. You can definitely choose um, not to have a hysterectomy with this, but from what I remember, and perhaps Karen can shed more light just in a general Mm -hmm. sense, but it had to do with what hormones I would be allowed to take afterward. And I think if you you keep your uterus, you have to take um, a certain kind of hormone that I perceived back then as being potentially um, not as safe. And so I figured since I was done having children, and I did mm-hmm. not need my uterus anymore, mm-hmm. so to mm-hmm. speak. Um, it was kind of like an appendix at that point. You don't really need it, <laughs> uh, a gallbladder, what have you. Um, then I decided to uh, limit and specify the kind of hormones I was willing to be taking after the surgery, and that's why I chose to remove um, my uterus as well. Can you comment on that, Karen? Uh, yes. So if somebody tests positive, the recommendation is to remove the ovaries and the fallopian tubes because mm-hmm. uh, both of those are at increased risk for cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, removing the the uterus is optional, but as Allison just uh, mentioned, sometimes it's done um, because a woman has some issue with her uterus. She might have fibroids. Those are very common. Um, or she might be doing it because it it uh, allows her to take uh, estrogen rather than both estrogen and progesterone, which are needed if the uterus remains. Mm-hmm. Um, so for ease of hormone replacement, perhaps. So it's about that post treatment kind of you know, post surgery kind of hormonal treatment. So there. So just to be clear, right. Karen, there's no there's no link with the BRCA gene to any other cancers, so there's no link to uterine cancer, cervical cancer, any other women's cancers? Well, there, there actually are some slight increases in risk in some families mm-hmm. for uh, uterine and cervical cancers that have been seen, but they're not um, 
proven to the extent that uh, any surgery is recommended on that basis. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. And, so, and that's so, only with BRCA1 families. With BRCA1, okay. Mm-hmm. Now, now, Karen, so, you know, you're, you're, you're counseling a lot of folks through, uh, uh, through this, and I imagine, you know, as Allison's suggesting that, um, you know, how old you are, where you are in your life, where you are in your relationship, where you are, you know, and all of those things are going to factor into whether you want to have the test, A, and B, what you want to do about it. Um, yeah, and also yeah. Your, your experience with your family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Allison had uh, a very difficult experience, and, and uh, in some families there may be very little family history, in fact, you know, that's not usually the case, but it can be. It can I be. Mean, I would totally agree. I mean, if I um, hadn't witnessed um, my mother's illness to such a degree and so perhaps intimately and up close, um, perhaps it would have seemed more at arm's length what mm-hmm. might happen to me, but it was really, um, to me, um, looking in a futuristic mirror. Yeah, yeah. And and so and and so, Allison, we t- we just touched briefly uh, earlier on um, the fact that you lost both of your parents um, b- b- by the time you were you were thirty one. So let let let's turn to that conversation. Um, so with all that that you've gone through, what what did it mean to be kind of go- going through through all of this, both through through this decision making, through parenting, through all of this w- without your own parents? Uh, parenting um, without my mom and dad has been very challenging, and not because I wasn't or am a fully competent and functioning adult. Um, there are just a lot of aspects of parenting that I think we can all um, agree that it's easier if you have access to certain kinds of specific information. If I um, have a toddler and they're not um, doing things according to a developmental chart, you may want to know, hmm, I wonder what I did at that age. I wonder if I um, was a late walker. I wonder if I, uh, you know, teethed to this, you know, extent. I wonder when my mom allowed me to walk home from school by myself. These are milestone questions that are common with any household and any family, and it helps a lot to have the comfort of knowing how your parents parented you, and that is what's missing when you're a parentless parent. And what does it mean for your kids? Oh, my gosh. Well, there's a whole thank you for asking that because I think it's a really, really important question. That was one of the most striking um, aspects of the research that I did for parentless parents. There's a whole chapter in my book called The Grandparent Gap. And what I found researching this book is that there is so much research on the power and benefit of grandparents to grandchildren. They impact kids developmentally cognitively, socially. There are all these amazing aspects that grandparents lend to their grandchildren. They completely shape and mold who grandchildren are. And it's not just me who's saying it. These are schooled researchers at the top institutions in this country who have studied those relationships. And so when I started researching parentless parents, I really wanted to study the inverse. So if you don't have grandparents or have fewer of them, how does that impact a child? Well, the answer was striking. I thought it was dumbfounding that no research had been done about the vacuum. 
And, 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 and I mean, yeah. especially considering um, the numbers and the statistics, you know, the stats that you talked yes. about in, in the beginning of the show, and I would yes. echo those stats by saying, you know, in 1972, there yes. was only approximately 180,000 children born to moms 35 and older. Mm. You know, I don't know if you, but by 2000... Out of how many children born? Um, you know, I would have to, you know, definitely look that up. But the percentage of what I'm talking about is not as interesting as this next fact. Yeah. That by 2008, that number had skyrocketed more than tripled to 603,000, wow. which wow. is a 235 percent increase. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, so women are having babies so much later and to such high numbers right. that to me it was really kind of unconscionable that researchers, professional researchers who study family dynamics right. have not studied what the impact would be on kids. And so the, because the focus of that trend, the focus of that shift seems to be more around fertility, doesn't it? I mean, that seems to be, you know, whenever you hear about women having children later, I, you know, the conversation always seems to shift to fertility. But um, it, so we've only got a, a minute or so until the break, Allison. But, but so how did losing your parents at a young age affect how you, how you raise your kids? Where did you, look for, where did you look for that guidance? Where did you look for that decision-making without having your, your, you know, your parents there? Well, those are really good questions, and I think I'm going to answer the first one uh, first, which is how it, you know, how has it impacted me in general? Um, well, parenting, um, at least in a two-parent household, which mine is, you know, I have a husband who's incredibly engaged and he's very involved. Um, surprisingly, being a parentless parent has impacted our marriage, and because we approach parenting in very different ways, um, you know, I maybe a lot. I push my kids to be really independent, um, far more so than I think some of my peers, because my biggest fear um, from going through this whole experience with my parents and having lost them so early um, and going through BRCA and having the surgery is that I know life is not as long as we all might expect. And so I want my kids to be prepared Mm -hmm. just in case. I want them to be independent and do for themselves because we all know that tomorrow, I know it sounds trite, is not guaranteed. And so um, my kids were forced to tie their own shoes, you know, as soon as they could possibly do it. I would not do it for them. I know that sounds like a small example, but it's big. It's a small example for a toddler, and it keeps growing from there. Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe you can get them to do your taxes for you this year, Allison. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Uh, this is frankly speaking about cancer. We're having a, a really fascinating conversation today with Allison Gilbert and Karen Brown, and we're talking about. Uh, uh, a genetic uh, risk of cancer, genetic predisposition, and genetic counseling. Um, and we're, we're going to take a quick break here, but we'll be right back um, with Allison Gilbert and Karen Brown. And, and uh, Allison's going to talk a little bit more about her book, uh, Parentless Parents. We will be right back. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. 
Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're speaking with Allison Gilbert and Karen Brown. As you've heard throughout the episode, hereditary cancer can affect an entire family, uh, for, really for generations to come. We've been discussing uh, the diagnosis of, of, uh, uh, and detection of a cancer gene, what it means for individuals considering the test, what it means for making choices around genetic counseling. Uh, and in the final segment here, we're going to hear about Allison's new book titled Parentless Parents. Um, and her journey in learning from her parents' death and the insight she gained while meeting others who had also uh, lost their parents while, while raising their own children. Um, talk to us, Allison, about your new book, and we're so happy to be talking about it uh, with you today, uh, Parentless Parents, and, and really why you decided to, to, to write the book and what the, what the process has been for, for getting to this point where the book is actually being released and published. Um, well, the why is for me really easy. Um, I really felt alone. I felt that on every play date and on every trip to the, you know, music lesson that my son had, um, it really felt isolating. I felt that I was the only mom who uh, wasn't talking about her own mom coming over to babysit or their own father uh, teaching their kid how to um, ride a bike. I mean, I really mm-hmm. felt that it was. Um, it was very striking how lonely it felt, and especially because, and I touched on this a little bit before, that it impacted my marriage because my husband has his parents, and we're very lucky to have them, and I adore my in-laws, but they're his parents, and they're not my parents, and it just felt very isolating. And with my last book um, that I wrote before this, it was just called Always Too Soon, um, and it was about losing your parents. The um, the reaction to that book was it was not about parenting. It was not about being a parentless parent. It was just about being um, an adult who has lost that final second parent. But the one thing that everyone wanted to talk about when that book came out and the months and years uh, since it's been published was the parenting piece. Because mm-hmm. it really impacts 
um, how much um, leash you give your children. It also makes people act in the reverse from it, how it impacted me. Some people really tighten the rope and are really deathly afraid of letting go because they know bad things can happen, and so they really kind of are very, very strict and um, overly protective of their children. Um, so it really morphs um, and truly shapes um, how you are and how you interact um, with your kids. So tell us about the, tell us about the research that you did to write the book that you did to prepare, um, and as that research and that, that process sort of unfolded, what what were your findings? What were what were the trends that you were seeing? You know, as a result of that process. Um, well, I'm going to answer the the process first about what I actually did because I think that actually underscores the validity of some of these broad and sweeping conclusions. So um, I did one-on-one interviews, uh, which I think provided a lot of the color um, and context to the book in terms of what people's personal experiences are. And I went all over the country and conducted them in person. And I also did, you know, obviously many, many more on the phone from places that I couldn't get to as easily because I had two young kids. <laughs> and, um, and then I also did focus groups um, because I thought that a group dynamic, as we all know, um, when uh, w- people get together in person, the conversations could be much more um, fluid and people can really share um, what's going on for them and then they can kind of feed off each other. So I did focus groups um, in Los Angeles and in New York as well. And then I think one of the most um, important parts of the research that I did was that I constructed and launched um, with the help of a research scientist um, a very exhaustive um, survey. And what that did, it's called the Parentless Parents Survey, and it was for online use, and so it really attracted people not only across the United States, but it went to a dozen countries um, around the world, um, from as far away as Japan and Australia to the Netherlands. I mean, it was just extraordinary. And you really got to have a bird's-eye view of what this means to an entire population. And so for me, because this has not been studied before, it's really the first ever look that we're getting at this demographic. Mm. Wow. Really, it's an unbelievable amount of research that you've done to bring us to this. Um, so, so how does this, uh, I, I was interested in the reference that you made um, to your in-laws, that you love your in-laws, they're great people, but they're not your parents. Um, how does that? How does that? How does that feel? I mean, do they? Is it? Is it? Is it? A, is it a wedge? Is it something that's always kind of hovering? Is it just something that you kind of hold inside of you? I mean, what is that like? Does it affect the the family dynamic? It, it, it definitely does, but it's not just me. I would love to tell you some of these um, stats from the Parentless Parent Survey that can really put this into perspective. Fifty um, percent. You know, one out of every two parentless parents who did the survey doesn't think their spouse actually gets what it's like to be a parentless parent. Now, that to me is striking, to have so many husbands and wives wives declare that their spouse just doesn't get it, I think that, you know, speaks to the point that this is a very sometimes lonely um, experience. And then in terms of the in-laws question, listen to this. Um, in, this is the, one of the statements in the survey. My in-laws truly understand what it's like for me to be a parentless parent. 62% 
of all parentless parents surveyed disagreed with that statement. Mm-hmm. So they believe their in-laws don't get it. And it right. goes on and on. So I find um, there's also another um, statistic that I think that you'll find striking too, which is that many parentless parents are actually resentful jealous of the time their in-laws get to spend with their children because they know that their parents can't spend the same time. Right. And, of course, they're grateful, too. And so it's, it's a mixed bag, which is complicated. Right. So it's not black and white, but it's a very um, mixed soup, which you know, makes these relationships um, you know, difficult. And what about the relationship between the, between the spouses? How, do, how, does it, how does it impact that? You mean if, if one parent is parentless and the other is not? Right. I mean, is there resentment towards your husband that he has his parents and you don't, that they well, can I mean, be grandparents? I mean, I, I, I can really tell you from my experience, and, and maybe that will, you know, help you. You know, I, I get jealous. You know, for sure, I am totally, 100%, my husband would, you know, tell you that I'm not, you know, making it up. I am completely envious that he gets to share all of our kids' milestones, uh, that he gets to have them at their graduations, that he gets to have them at their piano recitals. But what I've done also, because it's not just such a sob story and sad and woe is me. The upside is that through writing this book, I've also come away with lots of positive um, applications of some of these um, research findings. And what the most important thing I found was that I can redefine what family is to me. And so I could embrace my in-laws, but also have that separation. I can also embrace my friends as family and not just define it locally as just my mom and dad. I can broaden it. And that's actually been very um, healing for me. And it's been very, very useful for other parentless parents to realize that they can make their family as big as they want it to be. It just doesn't have to be limited to their own mom and dad. Allison, we're coming to the end of the show. Um, what do you hope readers will learn from reading your book? What do you hope that they will get from, from reading it and from, from hearing about your experience and the experience of so many individuals and families? I'm really glad you asked me that. There's two things specifically. Um, there's an entire chapter in the, in the book about how to keep the memory of your parents alive. Mm. One of the things that I heard on and on and on again was people that really did not know either how to talk about their parents with their kids because they're worried about it being depressing or they mm-hmm. don't know what to say. And there's a lot of very age-appropriate, fun and creative ways to keep the memory of your parents alive that is not onerous and it's not horribly time-consuming or, you know, horrible to do. It's a lot of fun, and I give some really creative ideas. The other thing is that you're not alone, and there's Parentless Parents support groups. If you go on parentlessparents.com, there's support groups all over the country in person, or since we all live on Facebook, as we know, um, Parentless Parents is on Facebook. There's a group there where people can talk and, well, be conversant on Facebook and share ideas and share strategies about coping and connecting, and I think that I would love people not to feel like they're going through this by themselves. Yeah, wow, that's fantastic. I think really some great tips um, that we can share with folks here today. Uh, We've had an amazing conversation uh, with uh, Allison Gilbert, author of uh, Always Too Soon and her new book, um, Parentless Parents, uh, where she talks about um, raising her children without her parents and what that's like and has interviewed hundreds of people who have been in the same situation who share their own stories and their own experiences 
uh, around that. Um, and uh, it's really been an amazing conversation uh, today about that. Uh, we were also uh, very fortunate to have Karen Brown, who's a genetic counselor at Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York, um, uh, sharing with us about what it means to uh, have a genetic predisposition to cancer and, and, and test positively. We talked specifically about the BRCA gene today um, and uh, the steps that uh, folks can take if they believe that they might be um, uh, uh, BRCA1, BRCA2 positive. So I want to thank you for being here today. Um, Allison's book is available wherever books are sold and online. For more information, you can visit her website at parentlessparents.com. Please also visit us at the Cancer Support Community, cancersupportcommunity.org. And until next time, be well. Do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.